Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. We know that infertility does not discriminate and often the support is not there for minority women. And my next guest is trying to change that with her platform, Brown Girl Infertility. Welcome, Seda Voss. Fertility treatment causes a tremendous amount of stress on a couple. What kind of advice do you have for couples? To approach it as a team and not ever lose sight of the fact that you're one unit. Working together on treatment goals, how you will approach important decisions around limits of how many attempts you both are willing to make. When are we taking a break? How much money are we going to put into this? When do we stop if we do divvying up responsibilities, involving each other in appointments, going to things together, things like that. There's a lot of emotional burden and you and your partner are not the same. When we went to couples therapy, we learned about love languages and coping styles and listening styles and helping styles. And so I definitely want to put a plug in for couples therapy. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journey Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. One of the main reasons I decided to pursue a fellowship in integrative medicine was because I knew that there was more I could be doing to help patients. So many patients asked me questions about what they could do to help improve their success rates, either outside of treatment or with treatment. And I'm a strong believer that lifestyle factors do impact our health and ultimately impact fertility. This is important for both male and female partners looking at nutrition, sleep, stress, movement, and exposure to environmental toxins. I think oftentimes men get left out of this conversation. And so today I want to focus a little bit on environmental toxins and how they can impact sperm health and why it's important to pay attention to environmental toxins. So much of the focus often is how can we improve egg quality? What kind of things can women be doing? But I think we need to pay attention to the fact that both sperm and egg quality is important in a pregnancy. Now, there are many chemicals that can impact sperm, but today I'm going to be focusing really on BPA or bisphenol A and phthalates, both of which are endocrine disruptors, classic chemicals that really can interfere with our hormone system, and so we see that it can impact fertility. There have been studies that show that higher levels of urinary BPA or bisphenol A is linked to reduction in the motility of sperm or sperm movement, the morphology of sperm or the sperm shape, and even reducing count. Now, BPA is a chemical that is found in plastic water bottles, plastic products, lining of cans. It's on receipts. This is really where we could find BPA, and we can do a lot to reduce our exposure by trying to reduce our exposure 
with canned foods, as we said, plastics, receipts. If you're someone that's in contact with receipts a lot, making sure you wash your hands. And we do see that there's also lots of impact when it comes to phthalate exposure, phthalates being a class of chemicals that's found in soft plastics and most commonly found in body products as fragrance. Phthalates is a chemical that allows the fragrance to really stay longer in the products, whether that be on clothing or whether that be on your body. And there have been studies that showed that men who had the highest levels of phthalates in their body were less likely to conceive a pregnancy with their partner over the course of that year. And so it's really important to pay attention to exposure. It can be hard to make changes, but I think slow changes, trying to swap out products when we finish a product with a cleaner one, looking at websites like ewg.org, Environmental Working Group, or madesafe.org, those are two great places to find products that are clean. There was an additional study that I wanted to bring up out of the Journal of Environmental International, which looked at the metabolites of BPA, parabens, which is another type of chemical that's found in body care products, as well as phthalates. They looked at all those chemicals together in a combination to see how that impacted pregnancy outcomes. And so when they looked at the results, they found that male partners who had the highest levels of concentration of these chemicals had a higher likelihood of being unsuccessful with fertility treatments. We know that fertility treatments are stressful, they can be very costly, time-consuming, and so we want to make sure we're giving the highest chances possible. These are the small changes that we could be doing to help improve success rates. One of the questions I often get asked or some of the pushback I get is, I know lots of people who use these products every day, but they don't have issues with fertility. And I think one of the most important things to understand about chemical exposure is that everyone's body metabolizes these chemicals differently. And so you could have two people in the same household, both have the same exposures, but have different outcomes. There are some people who may not be as affected by these chemicals in their fertility, but we do know that these chemicals have far-reaching capabilities of causing issues with obesity, diabetes, thyroid disease, and we've seen that it can have generational effects to offspring And we've seen it in animal studies as many as three to four generations later, the effects of BPA. One of the most important things to remember about these chemicals is they're not doing anybody favors. They don't belong in any of our products. We have to be really informed consumers about how to purchase our products to keep us safe. Unfortunately, we can't just buy things off the shelves and and feel comfortable. We really have to vet products. And that's why I recommend using sites like Environmental Working Group and Made Safe because they have vetted products. It allows you to select things quite easily without having to do a lot of research. I hope you found this helpful today and I hope you enjoyed today's interview. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to be able to have an opportunity to lift the voices of others in the community. We know that infertility does not discriminate, and often the support is not there for minority women. And my next guest is trying to change that with her platform, Brown Girl Infertility. Welcome, Saida Boss. Thank you, Shala, for having me on your platform. And I'm super excited to be here and chat with you about all things fertility and infertility and about my journey and my page. Yeah, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing for your community. Can you tell us a little bit about? Brown Girl Infertility and why you decided to start it? Sure. Brown Girl Infertility is my handle on Instagram. That's the page that I run. And it's about my journey 
and about all topics under the umbrella of infertility and fertility. And it wasn't really until I began my own treatments that I realized how isolating the process is and how much I was looking for a community to talk to and to share and to learn from. I thought it was all science. I totally did not realize that there's a human aspect of this. Mm -hmm. There's a psychological tool that's often ignored. And there's so much to be gained from having a community and having stories and journeys and people to connect to that are going through the same thing. So I did what a lot of people do. I turned to the internet and I went on Facebook and Instagram and I saw all these pages and websites and words of advice. And I appreciated every ounce of it. But one thing was very clear to me. It was I didn't see a lot of diversity. I didn't see faces that looked like me. I know black and brown women seek fertility treatments, of course. Mm-hmm. Infertility does not discriminate, just like you said. But why am I not seeing those faces? Why are those stories not being told? And why do so few women that look like me talk about this? Of course, no one should be forced to share. But mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think about the enormous stigma that's attached and the shame that comes with infertility in our communities. And I really felt compelled to change that. And I felt like I had to create the space that didn't exist. And I wanted to start a page to just break that stigma, share my story and see who else is out there that looks like me is going through the same thing. And the response was tremendous. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but that's how the page started. I think it's amazing what you're doing because you're right. We know that there's a lot of stigma and taboo attached to infertility, unfortunately, still, and even more so in a lot of cultures and communities. And so I think what you're doing really trying to help to break that stigma is really needed. Tell us a little bit about the feedback you've gotten from your followers. The feedback was great. I instantly had tons of people that were following me and messaging me and just there was an overwhelming amount of people wanting to talk about it, people that looked like me. And I was a little overwhelmed because I didn't realize that there's so many people going through this in their own little silo or bubble. And there was just so much of the same kind of messages that I kept getting about how people feel lonely and alone. And they were Mm -hmm. just so grateful that I was talking about this. And they were like, thank you so much for starting this, that kind of messaging. And I I was very overwhelmed by that and moved because a lot of people messaged me saying I was the first person that they were reaching out to and they had been going through this alone. So that was definitely something that moved me. And that was the response. I wasn't expecting that response, but it's been great since then. You know, I've connected with so many people and I've made relationships and friendships and it's been great. Yeah, I imagine that you really have inspired a lot of people. And as you said, not everybody is going to be able to share nor wants to share, but it definitely helps to see someone like yourself who looks like you, who's from your community or your religion or culture, who's doing the same thing or going through the same struggles. Can you tell us a little bit about your fertility journey? Sure. I really wasn't thinking about my fertility in my teens and 20s. And I think that's probably a good point to start because I had never talked about it before. We don't really talk about it. We don't plan for it, right, generally. And I assumed things might work out if and when I wanted to have kids. I saw kids in my future, but I never really lined things up or looked into this because it was so overwhelming and I was so focused on other things like my career. And in my case, my partner went through cancer about a decade ago, leaving him fully 
infertile with a small stash of frozen sperm. Mm-hmm. And that's known as a case of severe male factor infertility. When we started our relationship, I knew that IVF was the only way for us to have children. But I never really took interest in exploring too much of it. I thought, okay, science has it covered. Mm-hmm. People have babies through IVF. We're going to deal with it when we get to it. And I never really took interest in learning about my own fertility and what my body was doing. We wanted to make sure we were truly ready before we jumped in. And then when we were, we started IVF and we quickly realized what it entails, how it's basically not guaranteed. And you can't just go in and have the lab do the work for you and walk out with a kid. So it's been a journey. We've done several cycles at this point, And that's the, the gist of it. And having that your partner had a medical condition that made IVF the only option for you. How did you handle the grief that came with that idea? Because I imagine you have an idea of how things will go in your future. And when you're faced with that, how did you handle that? I knew from the beginning that this is something that we're dealing with. It wasn't a surprise. So that's definitely, I think, important because Mm -hmm. I supported him through his cancer. I had a lot of time to process it and Mm -hmm. embrace the reality and come to a very pragmatic approach and understand that, all right, we're going to have kids through IVF. And I chose that and I chose him and I was, I was fine with that. So actually Mm -hmm. I didn't really go through grief Mm -hmm. or any loss really until we dived in. A lot of it has to do with the fact that I was naive about what infertility treatments entail. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we would be one and done. We would have one cycle of IVF and we would have a kid. There's so much loss and waiting and grief Mm -hmm. involved in that process when you're trying and you go through a cycle and you end up with no embryos. So that's when the grief set in for me. But initially, you know, we really weren't surprised. It wasn't like we couldn't figure out what was happening. We had to go get testing. We knew it from day one. So in a way, I was able to come to it in a very integrated way. There weren't really any surprises. Yeah. So you mean basically that most of the time in infertility, we're not sure what's going on. And here you had an identifiable cause. So you were prepared in a way, but really put it aside until you were ready. When you finally got to it, do you feel like you were prepared as you thought you would be? Or did you feel like, oh, I wish I would have done this or that before I got to this point? Completely unprepared. I felt like... It's so weird because he's in medicine and Mm -hmm. I'm not, but I have some know-how of science and medicine, but we got to it and I was like, wow, I really don't know anything about this. I also was shocked at how little I knew about my own body Mm -hmm. because you have to know about your body and you have to know about your reproductive organs and your hormones to sort of understand like what this process is going to look like for you. And I had no idea. There was things that were suspected in my past with like, issues that I might have, but I didn't know what AMH was or any of the hormones. And then we did our first test and my AMH was way lower, which means how many mm-hmm. eggs you probably have left. And that was the first time I felt complete loss and grief mm-hmm. and just sadness. And I was like, wow, I, why did I not do this test 10 years ago? We knew this was mm-hmm. going to be how we're going to conceive. And so I knew very little about the process, about my own body, about how to cope. I knew nothing, Mm -hmm. really. You knew it, but nobody at that time really told you 
what maybe you should be looking for, what you should do, because you were dealing with your husband's condition at the time. Hey, just free sperm for future. And then that was the end of it. And then when you have to go in and go, now I have to go do ovarian function, there's a disconnect between the end of once your husband did treatment and you were like, well, just think about it when we're ready to have kids. But there should be some sort of education that comes into letting you know what kind of steps you'd have to take to move forward and then doing testing and maybe when you should get started. Because I think the idea, as you said, is just when I'm ready, we'll just go and do it and one and done. Exactly. It really grinds my gears. We don't learn about our own hormones and our, our ovarian function or anything like that when we should be. The time to talk about it is in your teens and in your 20s when you should be getting your tests done and figuring out, do I need to freeze my eggs? Him and I could have banked embryos 10 years ago when I was in my mid-20s, right? The education is really lacking. And we were like, all right, we have frozen sperm. We're just going to avoid this chapter until we actually want kids and right. deal with it when we will. And the reality is that nobody's teaching you that maybe egg quality is different or quantity is different in 20s or 30s until you're at that point. Most patients are coming to the office where they wanted to maybe have a pregnancy a year or two ago. And so there was never that information. And so many are coming surprised. As you said, I think it would be wonderful if we had more of this education for younger women. But I think the piece that makes it so that we don't is the fact of the matter is Although infertility is not uncommon, it's less common than patients not having issues. So we're so caught up in how to prevent pregnancy that we're not really educating women on the other side of that coin. You're right. But I, I also want to definitely highlight that we collectively are probably a decade biologically later than where our ancestors were, right? When we're having kids. And in your 30s, the decline is rapid. And I don't want to sound mm -hmm. like an alarmist, but it's true. That's mm -hmm. the biology. And we can't deny that. And in my mind, I was like, oh, people have kids in their 30s all the time. My mom had kids in her 30s, her sister. So we don't have kids young and whatever, you know, I was so naive about it. But yeah, we really have to be talking about what actually happens to your body once you are in your 30s. And for a lot of people, it could be in their 20s. So it's like that early testing or just learning about your hormones and what your ovaries are doing is so important. Yeah. And also because some women will go through a fertility decline at an earlier age, we're all going towards menopause. Eventually, all women are going there. But the age range of menopause is so wide. Average is 51, but some could have it 45 or younger. And so then we're going to see there's a wide range of fertility function, even for women in their 20s or their 30s. You know, I think it's important to get tested. It doesn't mean you have to act on it, get educated and learn what your numbers are. Initially, you felt like fertility treatment is just a science and it's a physical thing. And then once you went into it, you understood more about the mental aspect and how there's not a lot of attention that's paid to that. And fertility treatment causes a tremendous amount of stress on a couple. How did you both stay connected and what kind of advice do you have for couples going through? I definitely have a lot. <laughs> and I recently did a post on this. Uh, if people want to check out my page where I actually go through and list a number of ways how you can support your partner and how to feel like a team, because I think it's so important to approach it as a team and not ever lose sight of the fact that you're one unit. And mm -hmm. for a lot of people, and I hear this from a lot of people that message me, it's, oh, it was my issue or it was his issue. And 
when you kind Mm -hmm. of get into the weeds of that, you're breaking down in terms of being a team. I think the first thing is obviously working together on treatment goals. It's really important to know how you will approach important decisions around finances, around numbers, around limits of how many attempts you both are willing to make. It's mm-hmm. very important to like routinely check on that and be on the same page with things. Obviously, your goal is to have a baby together, but there's a lot of decisions you have to make along the way. When are we taking a break? How much money are we going to put into this? When do we stop if we do, right? Things like that. So I think mm-hmm. treatment goals, like working together on that is super important. Divvying up responsibilities, like administering mm-hmm. shots or just calling pharmacies and administrative tests. Wherever your partner's at, you meet them there and see what their strengths are. Obviously, involving each other in appointments, going to things together. I also want to highlight the fact that there's a lot of emotional burden that two people go together. And you and your partner are not the same. And that's something that him and I have learned about through couples therapy. So I definitely want to put a plug in for couples therapy because I think it's very important to think about it whether or not you're fighting or whether or not you think you have problems, mm-hmm. right? Because we are not given the tools and the language to deal with things like this or to even communicate with our partner about our feelings. And people approach grief and stress and things like that in different ways. And your partner mm-hmm. is not you and how you want to be shown love is not how they might show up. They might not know how to support you in the way that you need and vice versa. When we went to couples therapy, we learned about love languages and coping styles and listening styles and helping styles. And we would not have had those tools and we would not have been able to navigate this on our own. And we went to couples therapy way before we even started IVF, but it's so important, I think, to have a toolkit on how to communicate and how to support each other. There's definitely a big stress component and both of you are going to feel it. So it's very important to have rituals of connection and to bring your relationship back to like baseline, whatever that might look like for you. It could be date night. It could be taking a walk together or have a favorite like coffee. My partner and I, we always had a ritual after every retrieval, we would go to this little brunch spot and my clinic is very close to Central Park. So we would do walks sometimes if I had weekend appointments. So little rituals, I think, go a long way because that's how you can lean into your relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's very important. So I always say those are my tips for relationships. I love those tips. So many good things there. I think the idea of being a team is so important because you are right. I do see that a lot where it's my husband has this issue or she has this issue. You're a team. You came in as a couple. We intend you to go through this process and hopefully get to a pregnancy where you're going to be a parenting team. And I also like the idea of the rituals because sometimes you just get caught up in everything infertility. It's like your whole world is that. And you forget about all the things that allowed you to connect as a couple before. And so I think it's always important to stay in touch with that. So that helps to support your relationship and have something outside of just doing a cycle. So I think that's wonderful advice. And therapy also, I bring that up like every show because I'm really passionate. I think that 
We so often wait to get help or ask for help until it's a serious problem, until things are so far gone, we're so deep in maybe anxiety or separation as a couple or fighting, like you said. I think it's important to start before there is an issue because regardless of whether you feel it, there is a tremendous amount of stress that's going on while you're in this. What kind of things did you do to take care of your own personal stress? So many things. Self-care is not one size fits all. And yes. it's whatever works for you. For me, I think having a support system lined up is very important. Mm -hmm. Knowing who you're going to talk to, if that's how you cope with things. We're all tribal creatures and we need people. So and you don't have to go around sharing your stuff with everybody. But having a, a one trusted friend or obviously your partner, if you have a partner, family and family doesn't always support or show up in the way we want them to or like just having a support system I think is really important mm -hmm. and I, I made sure I had that taking care of my basic needs is self-care like sleep and nutrition and I mm -hmm. know because I've struggled with anxiety in my past I know my triggers if I don't get enough sleep I am not 100 so mm -hmm. especially during my cycles I made sure I slept nine hours every single night because that's what I thrive on and basic needs and nutrition is is very important to me too I'm a big proponent of acupuncture and meditation, like I said, and I did a lot of mindfulness work and practices, which is a constant work in progress. I think we absolutely cannot overlook the fact that your body is doing a lot of work during mm. treatment, but also your mind is sometimes just so disconnected from your body or just can't catch up or you're dealing with loss and grief and just struggling with anxiety and worry and spiraling. And that is a piece that I have worked on even before IVF. I'm mm -hmm. big on like mental health and my mindfulness work and practices and grounding. And that's sort of what I do. And I, I talked about rituals before with your partner, but for me, self-care is rituals all the way with myself as well. Like I mm -hmm. love to just tend to my plants or sit on my bed and drink my tea. Like that to me is self-care, right? Just a luxurious time like an hour in my bed drinking tea is so important and I just feel instantly replenished so it looks like different things for different people but those are the sorts of things that I do exercise is huge for me but if you're someone that self-care equals exercise which is me you have mm -hmm. to shift your mindset because you're not allowed to exercise really during IVF especially if you're doing back-to-back -back stuff and all that so I had to think about different ways of moving my body and Mm -hmm. just going outdoors, things like that. So that's my toolkit. Yeah, it's important to really identify what works for you because you're right. We can sit here and talk about meditation or acupuncture, mindfulness all day, and that often doesn't resonate with everybody. And so find what it is for you. If you like to do crafting, you like to draw, you like to go on a hike, that is how you manage self-care. What works for you? and also to allow yourself to do those things. That's why I said the example of sitting on my bed. I literally will do that for an hour or two, do nothing and sit on my bed and drink tea. That's why I'm saying self-care is turning into this branded concept because people are like, <laughs> I'm not going for hikes. I must be failing at self-care. Yeah, and, and like I said, give yourself permission to sit in your bed and have tea because sometimes what happens is, is like you end up just feeling like you were lazy. It's not... That's you taking time for yourself. It doesn't mean 
you're lazy, like you said, because you didn't go on a hike and that's what you're supposed to be doing for your self-care. And you're right. I think one of the things that I always get super nervous about when I talk to patients about here are the things that you can do to try to support your fertility. And we start talking about, well, your nutrition and you should do yoga and you should do meditation. There's a lot of that. You're already doing so many things. And now I'm like telling you all the things you could do. I think really understanding that you don't have to do all of the things. You don't have to eat this specific diet and all of that, because then it just becomes really stressful. So allowing yourself to do what you can, that makes you feel good. You're eating healthy because it helps you to feel better. It may help you with your anxiety. You're sleeping because it helps you to feel better. Not, I have to do this because that's the only way I'm going to be able to be successful is if I don't meditate and go to acupuncture and all of that. I struggle with that a lot like how to really impress upon people that we're not trying to create this overwhelm. Exactly. I think that's really important to highlight. You know, sometimes just doing less is what your body and your mind need. You know, I think one of the things that can happen when you're on your fertility journey is dealing with a lot of people that don't fully understand. And then they give you some kind of advice. And especially if it's someone outside of your family that doesn't know the circumstances that you're dealing with, how did you handle this unsolicited advice or any comments or things that can be hurtful or stressful at times? I hear about this a lot. I haven't dealt with a lot of this because I don't really have an extended family that doesn't understand. Like both sides of like mm -hmm. my family and my partner's family know what's up and they are very supportive and they don't really say stuff that doesn't make sense. However, I have dealt with this in the past and I know a lot of people do and I think it's really important to talk about how to navigate that because it's really hard to respond right away sometimes when someone will say something that's rude or you just freeze up. And I know this is a hot topic and it comes up a lot in the infertility community and I really want to stress boundaries and mm -hmm. it's very important to talk about boundaries. And a lot of times people don't know what it means. And I think it takes practice to know what boundaries look like for you. What kinds of things you can say to people. Does it mean you walk away from someone when they're making that comment? Does it mean you say, no, thank you. I'm not providing this information to you. Or thank you for saying this one thing to me, but I don't find it supportive. Or does it look like just not engaging? Does it look like being vocal? And <laughs> angry with them. Mm -hmm. So I think there's different ways to deal with things, but I think it's very important to, to know your boundaries, what they look like and what they might sound like. You have to practice saying things like, I understand your intention, but when you say this to me, it's not supportive. And I've said that to family members because sometimes family members will say things that are well-intentioned, but land in a way that could be triggering. Right. Do you need to not attend gatherings that mm -hmm. might put you in this situation? Do you need to restructure how you, what your social life looks like and your work life looks like during cycles? So I think that's my advice. Yeah, I think boundaries are important just in life in general for women, because I think so often people feel the need to give us advice on anything, but more so when it comes to how you should be moving and getting pregnant, or you've been married for X number of years, or why isn't there a baby, or you should have a second baby, you have one. That conversation has for too long been okay for strangers to talk to you. And so I think it's really important to learn 
how to have boundaries with people and feel comfortable because it's really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to feel like I have to tell someone maybe I don't really know that's not appropriate. It's not something you really just have to work on. But I think that's really great advice. And I think it's important to know what you're going to do in the situation beforehand, because I have been in that situation where someone said something to me and I was so upset and so hurt that I froze and I didn't know what Mm -hmm. to say. That was the first time that something like this happened. After that, I was like, all right, next time if she says this to me, I'm going to go in with this. So you have to know what will be triggering and how you'll respond beforehand. If you're going to a family gathering and people don't know your situation, it's really important to practice responses or have responses ready, like you said, or speak to your partner about having responses ready for family because often family members or close friends don't know. And so it really depends on your relationship and your situation. You know, there's a lot of stuff online. Now you've gone through multiple treatments and so you're a little bit more seasoned and having an understanding. But initially when you were starting, how did you sift through all the noise that was out there on social media about do this or do that or don't eat this or don't eat that? Because I think sometimes it can be really overwhelming and confusing and hearing all these people's stories and wondering if that's going to be you. How did you handle that? I think you're absolutely right. It can be super overwhelming and information overload. I think In this digital world, we're constantly connected and people are on social media every day, multiple times a day. You have to know what your limit is and where you draw the line because being constantly plugged in and just consuming all this information is not always healthy. For me, I did go on social media looking for stories and anecdotal evidence and Mm -hmm. just trying to connect with people. But you kind of have to know where you draw the line because when you're going through a cycle, sometimes just being on these infertility forums and reading about people's losses is so painful and triggering and you kind of Mm -hmm. get secondhand trauma and you Mm -hmm. realize that you might not have the emotional bandwidth to deal with that. So you have to know your limit and you have to draw the line. I don't think social media is always healthy and helpful. It is Mm -hmm. an amazing place. Like I love the infertility community, but there is a lot to be said about taking breaks from social media and distancing yourself if that's what you need to do. I agree. And I think the understanding that everybody's journey is different because I do see a lot of people that do a lot of comparison and you're vocal about your journey. But one of the things that you do And I've noticed is you don't really share specifics of your journey, as in how many eggs were retrieved, how many embryos we have, how many embryos we have frozen, because I see that a lot out there. I retrieved X number of eggs, and this is the number of embryos we have, and this is how many are normal, and this is how many are girls and boys. And the specifics sometimes can be difficult for others. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to keep that private? Yeah, sure. So I've been very vocal about numbers being an off-limit thing. Like I will never talk about my numbers and there's a strong reason for this. So numbers, I think by virtue and definition are a measurement and they quantify Mm -hmm. something. And there is definitely a trend, like you said, in the infertility community of people going through cycles and be like X number of eggs retrieved. Y number fertilized, and then this many embryos, and then this many normal PGT tested. There's definitely that trend. 
And then there's also really when you're going through this process, you know, numbers are constantly thrown in your face by doctors. It's Mm -hmm. all about how many eggs every single day you go in, every morning you go in, and they literally count your eggs to see how you're responding to the medication. And it's all about how many eggs and how big they're getting. And so when you really start to measure yourself and think of yourself and your body in terms of numbers, it can lead to a lot of comparison and -hmm. feelings of inadequacy and just plainly feeling like you're failing or not doing enough if you're not hitting a particular number. And I Mm -hmm. remember feeling that way because when I saw other people's numbers, how can you not feel that way? When you try everything and you did all the medication and you work so hard on a cycle and you end up with nothing, like no embryos, Mm-hmm. it's really devastating. And I felt like crap when I looked at people's numbers and I'm like, how does this happen? I realized I don't want anyone to feel that way because of me. Mm-hmm. So if I ever said I have, even if it's one or two embryos, for someone that has zero, because I know people personally that have done four or five cycles and they end up with zero embryos. For someone that has no embryos, that could be potentially very devastating. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to feel crappy because of me. And that's the reason I don't share my numbers. And I also think there's a qualitative aspect of of infertility treatments that we should not overlook. Mm -hmm. Looking back and saying, I did everything I could and I still ended up with no embryos is an amazing outlook shift to be like, I did the best I could. So the obsession and being caught up with numbers really does bug me. And I want to shift away from that. There's such a focus on numbers. And unfortunately, I feel like most of the time when they're shared, they tend to be higher numbers. And so there's this idea that if you don't have X number, then you may not be successful. And I have many patients who may have a smaller number and have been successful. So you don't need to have these large numbers to get to a a successful cycle. I applaud that you've done that. And if there are people that want to share it, that is, you know, up to them. And I don't want to shame anyone for sharing it. That's their personal choice. But I think it's an important thing that you did by keeping that to yourself because you're already sharing so much too. Isn't it also good to be able to keep something private too? I mean, this is a difficult journey. It's wonderful that you're able to share, but I think that there's still something that keeping that private is helpful for you. I completely agree. Thank you. Do you feel that being on this journey has changed you in some way? In so many ways, I, I can't even, I can't even begin to count. And I feel like I'm still truly going through a transformation because I'm still processing it. And I look back to the last two years and I'm like, wow, I did all those things. I really feel like I've changed and I've met a version of myself that I, I didn't know before. It has forced me to do a lot of introspection and healing and inner child work and working on myself and my mental health and how I connect with my own self and my own body. Because honestly, if I was not in a good headspace, I probably could not have been able to go through this or to do Mm -hmm. as many cycles as I did. I used to be an anxious person. I actually didn't know I had anxiety since I was a kid. (laughs) had no idea until Mm -hmm. I was like 25. And it's been years of work. And now I've really overcome it or tackled it. And I'm not going to say I've I'm not an anxious person anymore because that's who I am and I embrace it. But I've really been able to work on my mental health. And I think this journey with fertility treatments has made me more mindful of 
what my mental health looks like and what version of myself I need to be to be able to go through this. And I've really, for the first time, I think in my life, learned to truly surrender to something that I have Mm -hmm. no control over and to live each day as it comes and to just relinquish power and control because you really have none here. And Mm -hmm. I had no idea about that when I started my first cycle because I was so insane about the supplements and the food and in every cycle I'm not going to deny that but I was just so fixated on little things that I could control Mm -hmm. and just grabbing onto control wherever possible and I've learned I've transformed and really now looking back I've really learned how to surrender and totally relinquish control because it doesn't really exist I think on this journey. I do encounter a lot of women used to really controlling every aspect, whether it be in career or a lot of driven women. And then we now get into a space where you can't control this. It's your body. We couldn't control it if we were going to go for surgery for our joint or whatever the case may be. I think we forget that the human body is in our control somewhat, but you can't control what the performance will be of how many eggs you'll make and how the quality will be. That's completely out of your control. And so I think, like you said, what we do latch on to is what can we control? Well, it's good to do all the nutrition. At the same time, that can sometimes become a means of extra anxiety. So I usually really stress to patients to try to be mindful of that becoming a space where you can become more anxious and letting things go. What kind of things do you do to work on that? Because it doesn't come easy. It definitely does not come easy. I think taking breaks and reflecting is really important. I'm a big believer in that. And also knowing what you're thinking and doing and what effect that has on you and your mind is so important. Just having insight into that. And it's hard to have that insight without really doing any introspection or therapy because, you know, you really could get caught up in this, like, I have to eat a certain way or I have to take all Mm -hmm. these supplements or I'm failing at this. I had to really work on shifting my mindset, I, I would say. It's not an easy process and it's definitely a work in progress because I will be honest, I was always someone that was very type A. I'm like, give me a list of things to do and I will get it done. And I had control issues and I was like, all right, we're doing IVF. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And this is how it's going to work. And typically, you know, in your life, in school, career, whatever, the fruits of your labor usually pay off. But that's not how it works here. And so it really Mm -hmm. takes a big mindset shift. Working with somebody is really important because you need somebody to be able to identify the things that you're doing because we don't see it. You don't see that it's anxiety producing for you to do these things. And like you said, you didn't realize that you really had anxiety. I mean, a lot of people sometimes have a low level and it's not even recognized until you might be working with somebody that can help you to identify things that could be triggers or things that you can do to help to reduce those symptoms. Agreed. Did you feel that your upbringing or your culture or your faith had any bearing on your journey? Definitely. I definitely think it did. I can talk about my faith first and then maybe my upbringing because they're two separate things. They're definitely intertwined. I am a religious person and I Mm -hmm. prescribe to a particular faith. And that has kept me going, obviously, and helped me fully surrender to 
a higher power, universe, God, what have you. I think a lot of times, though, religion is used in a way that might not be helpful, I think, in this community mm-hmm. or yes. with our family. Like a lot of times people will say, oh, just believe in his timing or this is all God's plan or be grateful for your other blessings, right? And that can mm-hmm. be very much like toxic positivity and just not land well. So I think we have to be very careful when we talk about religion and, and faith. But for me personally, I am able to understand and integrate the fact that grief and gratitude can coexist. Like I can be so grateful for my blessings, but also be mm-hmm. sad about a particular situation. But I think truly my culture, my faith has really helped me fully keep going and surrender to a higher power. And I really believe that everything will happen as it should and whatever is in my fate will be delivered to me in good time. And that keeps me going. But culturally, and I think upbringing definitely influenced me in a way, like I said, women in my family don't have kids young and that did influence me. I don't know if that's a good thing because I was so very focused on my career and other things. I didn't realize that you could be both a career person and also plan for your fertility. You can definitely, Mm -hmm. as a woman, have and do both. And I think the background that you come from definitely affects who you are and how you approach this. I think for people in our mothers and our grandmothers' generations, you could definitely not do both. Even Mm -hmm. now, it's a struggle for many women that don't have the support and the uh, finances and what have you to go through this. But I did not realize that if you wanted, you can definitely focus on your career and your travels and your hobbies, as well as line up what you need for your fertility. So yeah, I do think your background makes a difference. You said that grief and gratitude can coexist. Sometimes it's this idea that there's people that have it worse this person, hey, you know what, I should just be happy because there's lots of people all over the world that are struggling and I should just be happy with where I am. And so it's not about that. I love the idea that having an understanding that both can be there at the same time. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Or you're not a bad person for being sad, right? Yeah. You're not ungrateful for being sad. I remember thinking that. I'm like, oh my goodness. Why do I feel so upset? I at least have the blessing to go through this mm-hmm. and have insurance that pays for this where while others don't. Or while 30 years ago, someone might not even have had the opportunity to do IVF. I'm so blessed. Mm-hmm. Why do I feel like this is unfair? So yeah, I, I had to definitely come to terms with it's completely okay to complain and be sad. And you're not an ungrateful or a bad person of faith if you feel that way. If you could go back before you started the treatment, is there anything that you would tell yourself to help yourself through this? If I could go back to like day one of my fertility treatments, I would say to myself that it's okay to be hopeful and excited, but be prepared for any and all outcomes and be prepared for a roller coaster because we were not. I also want to say, truly give yourself a lot of kindness and understand that you have very little role to play here. So if you have a bad cycle, you are not the problem. Obviously your body is working Mm -hmm. and you're doing great and you just have to remember to be kind to yourself. But yeah, I would definitely go back and say, 
be prepared for all outcomes because we really thought we would walk in and it would be one cycle and that was it. Yeah, it's true. Most people walk in very optimistic. And while there are a lot of couples that do go through one cycle and are successful, there are unfortunately a lot that go through, like you said, the roller coaster of emotions and things you weren't prepared for. And I think the problem is, and I usually tell patients that there's only one you. So you have not gone through treatment before. No one knows exactly how you're going to respond. Your doctor has worked with other couples around your age, with your numbers, with your number of follicles and all of that. So there's an idea of how the outcome should go, but nobody knows for sure because this is the first time you're going through. And then each response and each cycle can be different. I think the unknown is really hard. Not knowing what's going to happen is also really difficult. And then not knowing why. I think that's probably the hardest thing is having this outcome and then not getting the answers as to why did that happen and how do we fix that? I completely agree. And I I also want to say, you know, being kind to yourself also involves knowing when to take breaks and stopping because that's talked about very little. Like we see people doing back-to-back cycles. And I was like that. I did two back-to-back. And then I was like, no, I need a break. And I took a break for months. Yeah, I think that was really an important point that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to bring up because you're right, breaks. I I think there's this idea that we're so worried about the time and we all know ovarian function declines. We're already worried about our numbers. And now if we wait too long, does that mean our chances are going to go down? So you're worried about time. And then I think there's also this idea of keeping with the momentum. And if we stop, we have to deal with the emotions that came with this last cycle, whatever the outcome was. How did you handle the time that you were in break and not ruminate or be worried about all those things? I did my first two cycles back to back. And I remember going into my second cycle, I was already depleted because your body has done so much work after a cycle. Without Mm -hmm. a break, I think starting something new, I I know the fact that my energy wasn't where it needed to be and my mental health was not where I needed to be affected my outcome. I really feel it did. I really admire people that are able to do things back to back. And you're right. I think the fact that you said this idea of like time passing by seems like such a a burden. I want to say that, yes, time is passing by. But I told myself, if my mental and my physical health is not where it needs to be, I can't go into parenthood feeling not like myself because I can't be the best version of myself for Mm -hmm. this future kid, right? You kind of have to keep your eye on the prize. And I said, my mental and physical health Mm -hmm. comes before anything because I don't want to ever be like, oh my goodness, I am exhausted from this or feel resentful about doing all these things because this is something Mm -hmm. that you're trying to do to have a kid. And so after my second cycle, I took I think it was a three to four month break. And I worked completely on getting my mind and my body where it needed to be. And I did all the things that they tell you not to do. Don't drink too much coffee. I drank all the coffee I wanted. I was like so strictly gluten and dairy free. And I was like, I'm going to eat cheese and I have a a croissant with a coffee if I want to. Right. And we were vaccinated, I think, by then. So we started reuniting with family and friends and We took an international trip because that is something that we used to do, my husband and I, and we hadn't done since the pandemic and since fertility treatments. And I was like, I need to do all these things that bring me so much joy and will replenish me. 
I need to travel. I need to see people. I need to do all these things. I need to do my high intensity berries boot camp workouts because I don't care if they're giving me too much cortisol. I need to do that to feel like myself again. And it was amazing because I was able to detox from all the hormones and I felt so ready for the next thing. I was able to gain back some of the hope that I would, had lost, I think. And I really want to put a plug in for breaks to focus on what you need to do to feel like yourself again. I love that because one of the goals of doing this podcast is really the idea of not losing yourself or really on this journey and continue to take care of you. Although the end goal is to get to a pregnancy, like you said, you want to be able to enter into a pregnancy and motherhood, not lost. You don't want to be depleted and now your mental health is not well and your physical health is not well. So we need to attend to those things, the mind-body connection, your nutrition, sleep, not to an extent where it's going to create anxiety, but you're doing it to take care of you, not necessarily because, oh, this is supporting fertility. I'm going to eat like this because it's, it's going to give me better egg quality. You know, I'm going to eat like this because I feel better. I'm going to exercise because moving my body helps me to feel better, not because it's boosting my chances for being pregnant. So it's more about taking care of you and allowing you to be the best version of yourself when you're going through this. And I think it's important to highlight that when you do that, it's okay to do it guilt-free. It's okay to be like, I deserve this. I'm traveling because I deserve this and I earned this. Mm -hmm. And this is what mm -hmm. I need. And I also just knowing yourself, I took my break during winter because I know in winter I'm a very low energy person and my mood is all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. So I knew if I did another cycle in the winter last year, I would have had a bad outcome. So I think I knew that. And I was like, I have to be off for four months. And then I took another break between my third retrieval and my transfer. I think it's actually more common to go right into transfer than it mm -hmm. isn't. But I was like, no, I just pumped my body with all these hormones. Mm -hmm. And I just had a retrieval. I have to take time off again. I took all of last summer mm -hmm. off. And I said, I will not do a transfer because with a transfer, like you could be pregnant right away. And I get it. Like you can't wait to be pregnant. Mm -hmm. But what version of myself do I want to bring into parenthood? And do I want to be feeling tired and depleted and just my mm -hmm. body not feeling like myself? So yeah, all about breaks. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend them. I completely agree. In closing, I usually ask my guests how they cultivate joy in their lives because one of the problems I often see and I try to encourage couples to continue to find joy because often like I said it usually becomes all about infertility so I think it's important to still find joy how do you find joy in your life Sure. I love this question. I do a lot of grounding rituals and my hobbies and my home are very important to me. I absolutely love my solitude. I'm a big people person and I'm very social, but I love my solitude and I have learned to love it even more during the pandemic and during my fertility journey because I've been able to sit with myself and find joy in like little things like being a plant mom. Mm -hmm. I'm all about plants and my husband and I in the summer, we do a lot of gardening. We have a little outdoor space. We live in New York City, but we have little outdoor patio and we spend hours doing that. We actually grow our own vegetables in the summer. So just little rituals that ground you, I think are super important. And I find a lot of joy in that around 
my home and nature is super important to me. You know, before the pandemic, him and I would be traveling every three months. But now if I need outdoor time, I will go to a park or a hike and I start to lose my mind. If I'm not in nature, for me, joy is just being connected with the outdoors. And then I did mention that I am a, a big people person, but it's very important to know who to give your energy to and when to socialize, when not to. And again, rituals with myself, um, little things. And then it was travel for us. And it was just all these like CrossFit classes that I would do in my life has <laughs> obviously changed because of the pandemic and the fertility journey. I think little things around my home and my neighborhood and New York City is how we cultivate joy. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And I'm always jealous of all your plants. I feel like you need to teach people about gardening and house plants because you always have so many beautiful plants. I'll try to share more tips. And I have faith in you. <laughs> you can do it. It's, uh, you got to just get the easy plants. <laughs> okay, well, I'll keep trying. <laughs> Tell us where listeners can connect with you. Of course, you can find me on Instagram, Brown Girl Infertility. I have a Facebook page as well called Brown Girl Infertility and Loss. That is a private support group mm -hmm. sort of page. So um, if you would like to join, definitely head over to Facebook. Thank you so much, Seda, for being here today and sharing your story. I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Well, thank you, Dr. Salem, for having me and for your platform and this amazing podcast. Thank you for everything that you're doing as well. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ailey Cohen the triple board certified doctor in rheumatology, internal medicine, and integrative medicine, as well as an environmental health expert, Dr. Cohen is working to educate and empower the next generation to make safer, smarter lifestyle choices. Since I'm a rheumatologist, I see quite a bit of autoimmunity. These are nutritional iodine and other deficits. There are so many components to why people are now getting sicker younger. The idea is that we're now seeing a shift, a sort of shrinking of a time period where we thought people would naturally get sick at certain illnesses. Now we're seeing it younger and we're seeing it without family history, which is really pointing to the environmental exposure component, which includes nutrition. And I think when patients are sick and very angry about it and frustrated, they're not putting up with a lot of conventional talk of just medicines. They're looking to see where it's causing their problems upstream. And I think that's why integrative medicine, functional medicine, are gaining the attention that they're getting because they look for an upstream cause if they can find it. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.